Hello, everyone. I am bringing you a very special guest again today on the Thyroid Fixer podcast, Ari Witten. I have heard about Ari. We, we run in the same circles. We kind of know each other, don't know each other. We're officially meeting, but I have just loved his work for a long, long time. I've been following Ari. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about Ari. And today we are going to dive into a ton of topics related to thyroid and hormones and adrenals and your beautiful mitochondria. So Ari Winton is the founder of The Energy Blueprint. He's an energy and fatigue specialist, ladies, I know a lot of you are dealing with fatigue, who focuses on taking an evidence-based approach to energy enhancement, nutrition, exercise, natural health expert, and he's a number one best-selling author. He has been studying nutrition and holistic health for more than two decades and has a Bachelor of Science from San Diego State University in kinesiology with a specialization in fitness, nutrition, and health. He has a background in exercise physiology and fitness. He holds two advanced certifications from the National Academy of Sports Medicine as a corrective exercise specialist and performance enhancement specialist. In addition, he recently completed the three years of coursework for his PhD clinical psychology and education that rounds out all aspects, nutrition, fitness, and psychology, so true, of his approach to optimal health. Ari is a tireless researcher who has obsessively devoted the last 20 years of his life to the pursuit of being on the cutting edge of science on health and energy enhancement. Are you finally at your wit's end where you are tired of dealing with doctor after doctor? Maybe you've spent thousands on integrative or functional practitioners that have not helped you at all because they don't know the thyroid and hormones. They're not even testing properly. So come work with myself and my team. We prescribe to all 50 states and parts of Canada. I have you covered. I've been building this team for years so that I could help you no matter where you are. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes, book a free application call. We're going to go over your current health situation, what worked, what hasn't worked, all the things. And then we will pair you up with the right program for you where we will do it all. You will come out the other side of the program, totally optimized, getting your life back. You're going to recognize the person you see in the mirror again. Doesn't that sound absolutely amazing? Well, it might sound... Like you don't even believe it, but I promise you, I promise you, we will take good care of you. So click the link in the show notes, book a call today, and we'll be talking to you soon. So Ari, thank you so much for jumping in here and coming on today to give people all of your knowledge. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and it's been a long time in the making for us to connect. It has, it has. So you and I have a similar background. I used to compete in NPC figure. I know you, you oh, used cool. to do bodybuilding. So we kind of have that, that fitness biohacking background that, you know, I heard you on another podcast say, you know, back in the day, it was all about, you know, how much hydroxy cut could we take and what could we pump ourselves full of? And now the biohacking world has kind of moved more into real health, true longevity. Have you noticed that too? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, I have mixed feelings on biohacking, to be honest with you. Um, I think there's positive and negative sides to it. I think the trend towards uh, more of a health and longevity focus is a good transition. It is. But, but it's definitely the case that bodybuilders were sort of the original biohacker. 
you know, all the way back in the 1970s. They were putting all kinds of chemical, experimental, hormonal compounds into their body and seeing what kind of changes they, they could find. Um, they were doing it several decades before there was even a term called biohacking. That's true. It, like an experimental soup, basically. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, now we've kind of streamlined this a little bit more. And people like yourself have actually done the research, thank you, written books, and, and can now bring some real evidence to the table of what we can do to improve our health. So thank you for all that you do. Oh, thank you. Back at you. Yeah, it gets crazy out there. So today I really want to, in this world of thyroid that I'm in and that my listeners are in, we hear so much about adrenals and adrenal fatigue. And, and let me say, for I, I do believe that we need to support the adrenals. And I do fully believe that, and I'm sure you're seeing this too, people are under levels of stress that can definitely affect how they respond to stress, you know, how their bodies respond to stress, whether their adrenals are pumping out cortisol or whether their adrenals have just shit the bed and said, I'm not going to pump out any cortisol anymore. So... Can you please give, because I find it fascinating, your take. Can you please give your take on adrenal fatigue, air quotes, and let's dive into how that relates to thyroid function. Well, you're going to start me off on a controversial note. I am. Just right off the bat. That's what we do here. Yeah. Half your audience is going to immediately be turned off from everything else I have to say after this one. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. I promise you. No, they've heard me. They've heard me bitch about the adrenal fatigue label being thrown around too much. So we got you. So yeah, there's a lot to this story. I'll maybe do a superficial treatment at first, and then I'll let you guide where you want to explore deeper. So first of all, let's, let's talk about the general uh, adrenal fatigue hypothesis, right? The basic gist of it is cortisol is this hormone produced by the adrenal glands. It's involved in the stress response important for a number of things. It has all kinds of functions, anti-inflammatory functions, blood glucose modifying functions. The basic idea of the adrenal fatigue hypothesis is that with chronic stress, it wears out the adrenal glands and they are unable to produce enough cortisol. Right. Now, and then that results in many common symptoms, chronic fatigue and depression and insomnia and things of that nature. So that's one aspect that we can address is the research around adrenal function cortisol levels in the context of fatigue and does the research support the the notion that abnormal cortisol levels or low cortisol levels are consistently or predictably reliably underlying the symptomology of stress-related exhaustion burnout and chronic fatigue so that's one body of evidence we can look at Another body of evidence is the relationship of chronic stress and adrenal function and cortisol levels, okay? And and basically testing the hypothesis that chronic stress is eventually after, let's say, months, years, decades of a, a chronic stressor being present, that the people with that chronic stressor would have lower levels of cortisol on average, than people without that chronic stressor. And that, maybe I'll go there first. So that research exists. There's, there's decades of, of science on all kinds of stressors and how it relates to cortisol levels and adrenal function, HPA axis function more broadly, hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. So there are studies where they've looked at people under 
severe psychological stress for years and decades of various kinds of stressors, whether it's relationship stress, financial stress, career stress, you know, all kinds of different stressors. Right. They've looked at physical stressors, so overtraining with exercise. So athletes in the context of overexercising, how does that affect uh, cortisol levels and adrenal function, HPA axis function? Mm-hmm. They've looked at, you can look at chemical stressors, metabolic stressors of various kinds. You can look at, let's say, chronic cigarette smoking. And there are studies where they've even broken it down into heavy smokers, light smokers, non-smokers. Same with alcohol drinking, you know, and, and from a perspective of sort of total body load, allostatic load, these can be framed as stressors to the body in the same way that psychological stress can. So either, either way you splice it, you can also look at chronic metabolic stressors in the form of disease. So somebody's got obesity or diabetes, uh, chronic high blood, high blood sugar levels, chronic high blood pressure, metabolic syndrome, you know, combination of obesity and high blood sugar and, and dyslipidemia, right? And all of these stress the body in one way or another, whether it's psychological stress, whether it's environmental toxins, whether it's obesity and chronic high blood sugar, whether it's physical overtraining. And basically, to generalize, if I can sum up that entire body, large body of literature and all kinds of different stressors and how it relates to adrenal function and cortisol levels, that research consistently shows that people who are under these various kinds of stressors for years or for decades have slightly higher levels of cortisol on average, not slightly lower. There is basically zero evidence to suggest that any type of stressor is causing the adrenal glands to wear out. I I should actually say there's zero evidence to suggest that virtually any type of stressor for any duration of time, even decades of exposure to that chronic stressor, ever wears out the adrenal glands, causing them to be unable to produce enough cortisol. On the other hand, there is abundant evidence, and from animal studies as well, that chronic stress of various kinds has the capacity to cause the adrenal glands to to grow and be capable of even producing more cortisol in response to that chronic stress. You know, much like a muscle would grow in response to the chronic stress of lifting weight. Now, this is so. So that's one body of evidence. Now, there's this other body of evidence, which is is okay, is there evidence that abnormal cortisol levels or the adrenals are being worn out and then producing this symptomology of stress-related exhaustion, burnout, chronic fatigue? And uh, the very short version of that story, something I spent a year of my life on just that one topic, is that uh, there are 59 studies from but done by researchers all over the world over about 25 years where they looked at that exact question. They looked at Almost all of these studies, basically, they take a group of people with chronic fatigue, and this might vary. And this this varies in terms of the the um, specific fatigue syndrome. So it could be chronic fatigue syndrome. It could be stress-related exhaustion disorder. It could be clinical burnout. It could be burnout syndrome. It could be vital exhaustion. There are several different names of kind of overlapping fatigue syndromes. The basic gist of which, for most of them is chronic stress sort of leads to a burnout, exhausted state, fatigue state. Chronic fatigue syndrome is a bit different, but the symptomology overlaps in a big way. So 
of those 59 studies, basically what they do is they take a group of people with the fatigue syndrome and they compare their cortisol levels to a group of similar people without that fatigue syndrome. So okay. similar age, sex, lifestyle habits, smoking, drinking, exercise habits, and so on. And of the, those 59 studies, here's how it breaks down. 15 of those studies gave evidence for slightly lower morning cortisol levels being associated with the, the fatigue group okay. compared to the healthy group. 11 of those studies gave evidence for the exact opposite finding, slightly higher levels of cortisol associated with the fatigue group. Okay. And again, we're still talking normal ranges. We're not even talking abnormal ranges. We're slightly higher or slightly lower. Statistically significant, but we're not talking about major differences. They're not getting flagged high on a test, right? No, yeah, we're talking about very small differences. And... 33 of those 59 studies, the vast majority of them, found no discernible difference whatsoever in cortisol levels between the group with full-blown stress-related exhaustion disorder or burnout syndrome or chronic fatigue syndrome. I mean, these people may have complete, maybe completely debilitated with chronic fatigue syndrome, severe symptoms, can barely move, can barely walk 50 steps, mm-hmm. and have the same exact cortisol and adrenal function as somebody who's perfectly healthy with no fatigue. So that body of evidence, to to put it gently, does not give a compelling case that abnormal adrenal function is a key player in that symptomology. Yeah, that's pretty powerful, actually. Those are some pretty powerful studies that really should clear out the whole leaning on the adrenal fatigue crutch so to speak as an answer to their fatigue and I know you've been you've dealt with your own fatigue you've dealt with your own toxic soup stress burden and I'd like you to get into the story of of when you were in college and everything that you were exposed to because that kind of plays into what you just said you yourself were exposed to toxins and social environmental stress and and mental stress and physical stress because if you did what I do you know we that we overtrained you know that happened so everything that you went through when you looked at your own adrenal health and and short of someone having an autoimmune condition Addison's Cushing's we're not talking about those extremes but just in general when we're looking at adrenal health even you found that your adrenals were not blown out. They were not shot. You weren't overproducing. Is that correct? It is, yeah. yeah. I mean, let, let, me, let me put it this way. This is kind of an interesting area because there's no other medical condition for which whether you test high, low, or within the normal range, you're still diagnosed with that condition. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) It's true. We're fighting to get a thyroid diagnosis, but everybody gets an adrenal fatigue diagnosis. Right. It's it's like saying to someone who has high thyroid levels, whether they've got high thyroid levels at T3 and T4 levels or low T3 and T4 or perfectly normal optimal levels, you're either in phase one, phase two or phase three of hypothyroidism. 
right? right? It doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. But that's that's what people have been convinced of with adrenal fatigue. And it's just not true. And the evidence doesn't support it at all. Um, as I summarize those two bodies of evidence there. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a bizarre thing. To be honest, I was an adrenal fatigue proponent for many years um, mm-hmm. because there were, I, I was following, you know, my mentors with natural health and functional medicine were talking about adrenal fatigue and making videos and articles about it. And right. I was a young kid at that time looking up to these guys and, and thinking, wow, you know, they really know what they're talking about. And, I didn't have the scientific literacy at that time to go in and dig into the primary literature and make sense of it myself, nor did I even have reason to question what they were saying. It, it wasn't until I, I went through my own chronic fatigue mm-hmm. and I actually stopped. This is kind of an ironic way of arriving where I've arrived at, but I, I stumbled across the conventional medical view of of chronic fatigue, of uh, adrenal fatigue. And they brush off the whole thing of adrenal fatigue as, as nonsense, mm-hmm. as pseudoscience. Uh, in fact, there's a quote, there's a quote from, uh, I forget the exact body of endocrinologists, but they represent 14,000. It's like an institute that represents 14,000 endocrinologists, MDs. These are hormone specialists. Cortisol is a hormone. Sure. And they say something to the effect, this is almost an exact quote, they say, there is no scientific evidence to support the notion that chronic stress wears out the adrenal glands, resulting in low cortisol levels, resulting in many common symptoms like fatigue and yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- there is no, they literally say there is no scientific evidence to support this. And I was there a full believer and proponent of adrenal fatigue because I'm following these mentors that I followed for years saying that adrenal fatigue is real. Right. And I'm thinking, oh, these people in conventional medicine have no idea what they're talking about, you know, and which is true in many cases. In the, right. So, and then, yeah, because I don't blame you. It is true in yeah. most cases. So, yeah. right. And then I actually had the idea that I was going to go dig into the, the, the scientific literature to prove that adrenal fatigue was real. And what I discovered when I did that is that the, the, the scientific literature really doesn't support adrenal fatigue being real and that those... Uh, endocrinologist MDs are actually correct. Their position is is the correct one based on the body of evidence that we have. Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to go this roundabout way and lead off by talking about adrenals and adrenal fatigue because I know that's going to catch people's attention. Actually, you're not going to scare them away. They're going to listen harder. <laughs> now I, so. I want to go into your story. Like you said, you went through your own stuff like many of us do it's pain to purpose story that's how we land here that's how we're helping other people so what all did you go through in terms of chronic fatigue because many of my listeners have fatigue that's a big right weight weight gain inability to lose weight and then fatigue is number two with many of my patients and my listeners so what was your story that led you to be an expert in energy and mitochondria and fatigue yeah okay so when i was in my mid-20s i was living on a communal farm in israel uh and i was doing very hard manual labor job i was doing a ton of exercise in addition in addition to that i was extremely sleep deprived i was living in a like basically a dormitories with 
200 kids from all over the world in their, in their mid-20s uh, from South America and Australia and all over Europe and South Africa and, you know, um, South America and all kinds of places. And it was this coming together of 200 kids who, for six months, we all lived there, we worked, we studied, and we partied our faces off. Party. Just like college. Just yeah. like college. <laughs> right. <laughs> so... At some point during that, I got exposed to Epstein-Barr virus, and I was I obviously one of the unlucky ones who didn't get Epstein-Barr virus as a child, where it manifests as a common cold, Yep. but I got it as a young adult, and it often manifests severely as mononucleosis, or what they call in some other countries, glandular fever or the kissing disease. Mm-hmm. And... I hope, hopefully got it in a good way, at least by kissing somebody. Right. <laughs> at the very least, hopefully something positive came out of it. Exactly. But uh, I, I ended up getting severe mononucleosis. And for about six weeks, I was out of commission. And I had gigantic balls of pus in the back of my throat. It was extremely swollen and inflamed and painful, such that I couldn't even eat food. So I was living off broth for several weeks. I lost almost 40 pounds and I was severely fatigued. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of details that went along with this. Like people assumed that, you know, why he's, this guy's got a cold. Why is he out of commission for so long? Why he needs to come back to work. And I had a very demanding uh, uh, physical manual labor job. I had the hardest physical labor job on the, on the communal farm. And I worked with a lot of real badass guys, like uh, former naval commandos and special forces guys. And they were all really hard. I mean, these guys yeah, have actually no been in wars. They've been, they've watched friends die. They've killed people, you know, like really hardcore guys. And so your so fatigue of, didn't really mean much. Yeah. Like you were kind of brushed of, off, like quit being a, a wuss, yeah, right? <laughs> Yeah. I didn't know what was wrong with me either. It took me weeks and weeks to even, it took me, I think, at least four weeks to even get a diagnosis. So I'm also questioning my own toughness as far as, and pushing myself to go back to work during this time where my body didn't work. Anyway, there was a lot of forces. I was also living in a room with two other guys, one room with two other guys who are also partying and dating and that sort of thing and going out and drinking in the middle of the night. So I'm sleeping probably from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. where I have to get up and start my work. So there was a lot of forces that came together. We had mold infested in the room as well. So I was probably exposed to mycotoxins as well. There was a number of factors that kind of coalesced into me getting this severe sickness. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then after I finally got better, from that acute mononucleosis, I was left with severe fatigue, probably due to not resting enough and, and trying to work through it. Mm-hmm. So for close to a year, I had severe chronic fatigue. And I went to lots of physicians. I went to conventional doctors. Basically, they had nothing to offer people with chronic fatigue. We can talk specifics about that if you want. And then I went to the natural health and functional medicine people who all invariably diagnosed me with adrenal fatigue. Then I got my adrenals tested, my cortisol levels were normal, and that was what sort of first planted the seed that something's not quite right here. Uh, and, and, that, and then I went and explored all that literature that I just described to you about adrenal function and adrenal fatigue. And that was kind of when I came to the conclusion that clearly 
no one in conventional medicine knows how to help people with chronic fatigue and people within natural health and functional medicine don't really know how to help people with chronic fatigue, especially at that time. Things have changed in the last decade. I find the same uh, thing I, with thyroid, though, too. I yeah, mean, it's, totally. it's conventional is out and then only half of the functional community knows what they're doing. Right. Yeah. And um, so that was kind of the catalyst for me to become obsessed with the science of energy levels. It was kind of this realization, like nobody has this figured out. So why not me? Why not? You know, I've, I've been obsessed with health science since I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. Why don't I now devote that, that, that brain and all of that energy into building out a scientific framework of understanding what controls and regulates human energy levels and how do we go from fatigue to high energy? Right. Okay, so a couple questions. I'm going to pause you. Number one, you said EBV. So did you test, because we know Epstein-Barr virus is a huge precursor for Hashimoto's. Now, you're a guy, so you don't get hit as hard as we do as ladies with the whole hypothyroidism and Hashi piece of the puzzle. Did you get checked for Hashimoto's, and did you find a correlation there? So that's question number one. And then question number two is testosterone. So I want to know your answers to those two pieces. When I think fatigue, that's where I go but then I want to know what you did find. I didn't, I didn't do any thyroid testing back then. I've okay. done it in more recent years. My thyroid function is good. Okay. So I, I don't have any problems there. And then the second part was testosterone. Yeah. Uh, testosterone is also, also very good. Okay. But I mean, I, I mean, I live. Yeah. You I, keep I mean, your as, test as, levels as, up. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know of anybody else. And I think even among my, you know, natural health, and functional medicine sort of colleagues, I think even among them, I'm known for living like a, a pretty healthy lifestyle, even compared to most of them. Right. To keep your own levels up. Okay. So then we check those boxes. What did you find then in all of your studies? What does this fatigue component come down to that you're seeing and yeah. it related to you? Well, the, the biggest breakthrough was the work of uh, Dr. Robert Navio who uh, runs a lab for mitochondrial medicine at the University of California, San Diego. And he wrote a paper in 2014 called The Cell Danger Response. And the basic gist of this was talking about mitochondria as being vastly more important than any of us have previously realized. Mm -hmm. In the sense that in high school and college biology courses, we all learn about mitochondria as the powerhouse yeah. of the cell. Exactly. And, you know, it's just sort of framed as one of many different cellular organelles that we learn about. And it is kind of talked about as these sort of mindless energy generators that just take in carbs and fats. They pump out ATP, cellular energy. Mm -hmm. And this paper and the work of Dr. Navio really kind of revolutionized our thinking about mitochondria because he basically said, in his words, mitochondria are the central hub of the wheel of metabolism. So they aren't just one of many different organelles, one of a million different pieces of the body. They're the central hub of the wheel of metabolism in our body. And they aren't just these mindless energy generators. They actually have a second function that is just as important as their role in energy generation, and, and that is in cellular defense. So it turns out that mitochondria are 
actually these exquisitely sensitive environmental sensors. They are basically like canaries, the canaries in the coal mine of our body. They are the most sensitive, most upstream thing that they're constantly taking samples of the environment, what's going on in the body, basically asking the question, and this is really important, is it safe to produce energy? Okay, and, and the, the, the reason that's so important is, is because there are a hundred things that are in one way or another involved in energy. So you, you specialize in thyroid function. Of course, a symptom of low thyroid levels is fatigue. Right. right. If you've got low testosterone, you might have fatigue. If you've right. got disrupted estrogen and progesterone levels, you might have fatigue. If you've got neurotransmitter imbalances, you might have fatigue. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are dozens of mechanisms in the body that in one way or another relate to energy production, including uh, adrenal function and cortisol levels is one mechanism that is involved indirectly in energy production, in energy level. But the thing that is the most upstream that actually regulates energy levels is our mitochondria. And this is another way of thinking about this is like a car has many, many different parts. It's got a muffler and an exhaust system and a catalytic converter and pistons and spark plugs and right. And all these different, the the engine block and all these different things that, and the fuel that, that need to go into that engine working and that car moving down the road. But the thing that actually decides whether or not that car is parked or whether it's moving down the road and how fast it's going is the person inside the car pushing either the accelerator pedal or the brake, right? So we we can't say, oh, it's the fuel that makes the car go. It's the muffler that makes it go. It's the spark plug that makes it go, right? But those are all important parts, but they're not the thing that's regulating whether the car is moving or not. In the same way, the mitochondria are the thing that the primary thing that is regulating energy levels. And what is it regulating in response to? It's it's regulating in response to that, the answer to that question. Is it safe to produce energy? I love that question too. Mitochondria have the capacity to detect the presence of almost any kind of stress that you can think of. From environmental toxicants, to inflammation, any source of inflammation, whether that's poor diet, whether it's psychological stress, whether it's sleep deprivation, anything, to leaky gut causing uh, lipopolysaccharide from bacteria in the gut to leak into the bloodstream, which directly damages mitochondria, to all kind, any and every other stressor you can think up, mitochondria can detect. And to the degree that they are sensing the presence of threats, of stressors, of dangers in the body, They are turning down the dial on energy production and shifting resources towards cellular defense. So their function as energy generators and cell defenders are mutually exclusive functions. To the degree they are in one, they are shutting down the other. And this is fundamentally what regulates our energy levels. Whether we are fatigued or whether we have high energy levels like we did in our youth is determined by the degree to which our mitochondria are either in energy mode or defense mode. Okay. So let me, let me pause you there so we can get a kind of like a picture of this. I'm picturing this little guy in his car, right? And like you said, there's so many different things when you ask, is it safe? 
There's so many different things that we're exposed to. So we know environmental toxins. I mean, come on. We're, we're bombarded from the Bath and Body Works garbage that you put on your skin after your shower to the air you breathe, the water you drink, everything. So total toxic soup of an environment. Then we have the mental stressors that if you've lived the last two years, you have some kind of mental stress, the physical stress. And one thing that you said that caught my attention is the metabolic dysfunction or really insulin resistance, high glucose insulin resistance, which I see in 99% of my patients, pretty much if you have a thyroid condition, there's a 95 to 99% chance that you have insulin resistance too. So now we have that high insulin, high glucose inflammation, like you just said, how do you make it safe? So here's this little guy in the car going, no, it's not safe at all to produce energy. And now the person is fatigued and they're going, why am I chronically fatigued? Does that kind of like, do I get the story down, Pat? Do I, yeah. do I have that down, yeah, Pat? You, you, okay, so, so ask me the, the question that's in there one more time. Yeah, I guess I did. I, I just kind of made the story. But then the question is, so here's this guy. He's detecting, is it safe? How do we even make it safe? Because we have yeah. all these things that make it unsafe. Is there a way that we can tell the mitochondria it's okay to produce energy because we want this body to have energy and be able to make it through the day? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so big picture. Let me give you a big picture first, then we can dive deeper. Mm-hmm. There's two fundamental factors that are involved in answering this question. One is what is what is the degree of total body stress? Okay, and how that is going to determine basically the degree to which your mitochondria are going. Uh, okay, this is not safe. We're we're not safe to to be in energy mode. Let's switch into wartime metabolism, as Dr. Navio calls it. I call it defense mode instead of energy mode, mm-hmm. and uh, turn off energy. Okay, so that's that's one thing. And we can talk about all those stressors. I'm sure you have talked about and you've had many, many guests that have talked about different aspects of that from nutrition to circadian rhythm and sleep to gut health to um, environmental toxicants and mold and chronic infections and all those different things can be sick danger signals to the mitochondria that get them to turn off. Mm-hmm. But there's, a, there's another big piece of this story that I would say most people are not aware of. And that is the state of the mitochondria themselves. What I mean by that, it is is that it's possible, and and this goes beyond just mitochondrial damage or dysfunction. Sometimes people in the functional medicine community will talk about mitochondrial dysfunction. But here's, here's the piece they don't get. It's possible to have cells that are either filled with tons of mitochondria, big, strong, healthy mitochondria producing lots of energy and lots and lots of them. And it's possible to have cells that have very few mitochondria because they have literally atrophied and died off. And this is a critically important point that people just don't quite get. It's, and, and, and it's also important to understand that mitochondria are directly involved in responding and handling the stress load that the body is under. They, in order to respond to whatever that stress is, the mitochondria have to ramp things up and produce more energy. Okay. Now, let's, to, as an analogy, let's imagine that the, we're in the same room together and then we notice there's a building on fire. 
to the right of us? Is it easier for me to go handle that, putting out that fire with buckets of water by myself or with your help? A little bit of help. Right. And is it easier for us to do it, just the two of us or with 10 other, 10 other people? Let's get as many people as we can. Right. Yeah. So the same exact thing is true for the mitochondria in ourselves. If whatever is the demand that your body is under gets spread across those mitochondria. And if you have 500 mitochondria in your cells, this is 2000. And those are actually pretty real numbers as far as what's the average numbers of mitochondria in the cells and um, how this ties into aging and, and um, poor lifestyle. The person with 2000 mitochondria per cell will handle that stress load with ease and will maintain health and homeostasis and high energy levels. Whereas the, the, the body of the, the person with only 500 per cell, those mitochondria will be overwhelmed. You will have exceeded their capacity, what I call their resilience threshold. And once you exceed it, that's when the mitochondria shut down. And that's when you, the body shifts into fatigue mode instead of energy mode. Okay, so to go back to this, and, and we, I can talk more in depth about what controls how many mitochondria you have in your cells, what are the factors that cause a decline, how do we get them back? But big picture, the two factors that are controlling whether we have high energy levels are one, total body stress load from all the different sources of stress from nutrition to sleep to psychological stress to environmental toxicants to gut health, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And number two is what is the state internally in your cells of your mitochondria? Do you have lots of big, strong, healthy mitochondria or very few weak atrophy? And the combination of those two factors is what is going to determine whether your body is in high energy mode or low energy. Okay. No, that totally makes sense. That totally makes sense. So I guess the next question would be, because I know people are thinking this right now, is how do I find out what the total mitochondria... I mean, people know their stress load. They know it. I mean, we, like you said, we've talked about it, and people are pretty pretty aware and in tune of at least 50% of what their stress load is. But now, how do they find out that part two? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I wish there was a good answer to it. There are a few tests on the market for mitochondrial function. There's the mitoswab test. There's an ATP profile test. There's a couple others. None of them tell you really anything about how many mitochondria you have inside your cells. Uh, they can tell you about maybe nutrient deficiencies, organic acid tests, for example, can tell you about in, indirectly certain nutrients that are mitochondrial cofactors that you might be deficient in. Right. Um, you can get insight into other aspects of mitochondrial function. But you actually, there's no widely available test that will allow you to determine how many mitochondria you have in your cells. Now, that sounds bad, but I'll give you some insight into this. Okay, so... In research studies, they have tested it. And the way that they test it is they take a big hollow needle, they jab it into your thigh, they pull out a chunk of muscle tissue, they take a muscle biopsy, and they put it under a microscope and they literally count the number of mitochondria there is per cell. And they can also measure mitochondrial capacity in a few other ways in a, in a petri dish. Okay. Yeah, now, that, that is actually a really useful test. I wish it was widely available. It's also, it's very unpleasant. Most people wouldn't want it done, right. but it's a great test. 
what they found in, in those studies is that on average, people lose about 10% of their mitochondria with each decade of life. And it's also been shown in several studies that a typical 70-year-old not only has about half the mitochondria, the number of mitochondria, uh, as, a, as a younger person, 40, 20-year-old, but those, each mitochondria has only half the energy-producing capacity of a young person. Okay. Now, that's, all of that sounds really bad. Yeah. And it sounds like, oh, man, this aging thing sucks. We're it losing sucks. our mitochondria. There's nothing we can do. Right. Okay, well, here's the good news. They have also tested 70-year-olds who are lifelong athletes, exercisers, and they've shown that they have the same mitochondrial capacity as a young person. Oh, okay. I like this. There's, <laughs> so, there's, a, there's a silver lining. Yeah. So uh, what, what that means is that this loss of mitochondria that we're seeing is actually not a normal product of aging. It is a product of modern lifestyle, specifically lack of hormetic stress. Hormetic stress being exercise, all the different subtypes of exercise, weightlifting, high-intensity interval training, steady-state endurance training or cardio, sprint interval training, etc. Fasting, heat exposure, cold exposure, breath-holding practices, certain kinds of uh, what are called xenobiotic and xenohormetic stressors, uh, as well as certain kinds of light. Light, red and near-infrared light are also hormetic stressors. There's a few other types as well. But uh, these types of hormetic stress used to be built into the human lifestyle as just a matter of normalcy. If you look at a hunter-gatherer tribe, you will see the presence of all or almost all of those hormetic stressors mm -hmm. present to one degree or another all the time. And in the modern Western lifestyle, we have lost pretty much all of that hormetic stress as part of our lifestyle, we have food abundance 24-7. We live in climate-controlled environments where we are rarely exposed to heat or cold. We don't have to exercise as, as part of our lifestyle, right? On, on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually read a fascinating paper. I've been talking about hormesis for over a decade, but I read a fascinating paper that blew my mind just a couple weeks ago. It was these researchers talking about human intelligence, the, the, the evolution of human intelligence as a species. Mm -hmm. It largely originated from the pressure of hormetic stressors. And the irony of this is that as we evolved intelligence, we directed so much of our focus of intelligence towards the elimination of hormetic stressors, of discomfort from our life. So we don't, we can build, we, we started farming so we don't have to hunt and gather. We, created electricity and refrigerators and grocery stores so we don't have to ever go through food shortage and famine. We have these climate controlled and insulated buildings so we don't have to deal with heat and cold, right, et cetera, et cetera. So we've, systematic, we've, system, we've used our intelligence over thousands of years to systematically eliminate hormetic stress from our life so we don't have to deal with that discomfort. And in the process, we've created a whole bunch of diseases that originate from the lack of hormetic stress in our life. Mm -hmm. So now we have to apply our intelligence to reintroduce consciously some of these hormetic stressors so That's that true. we don't get those diseases, right? It's this kind of fascinating uh, timeline of, of events. But that's, that's the gist of it. Now, the, the great thing is also 
that the amount of mitochondria we have in our cells is dynamic, right? If you get a, if you break a bone, you get a cast on your arm or your leg, and then eight weeks later, you look down at your arm or your leg, it's half the size of when yeah. you get that cast off. It's half the size of the other one. Yeah. Why, why is that? It's because the body is ruthless about getting rid of any energetically costly tissue that isn't needed for survival. So as soon as that muscle goes into a cast, the body's going, I guess we don't need all that muscle tissue on that leg anymore mm -hmm. to survive. Let's get rid of it. Because right now it's just burning energy for no good reason. It doesn't help us survive. Our body's and smart. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. The body does the same exact thing when it comes to mitochondria. And as soon as the, those mitochondria are not being stimulated and challenged via hormetic stress, the body, they, they atrophy and they die off. And that is why people lose their 75% of their mitochondrial capacity as they age on average. But the good news is just as it, you can start, once you get that cast off, you can start lifting weights and get that muscle back. You can do the same with your mitochondria. If you introduce hormetic stress into your lifestyle, you can uh, cause what's called mitochondrial biogenesis or mitogenesis, which is the rebuilding of mitochondria. You can build them bigger and stronger, and you can literally create more mitochondria from scratch. That is amazing. That's good news. Yay. So we can spring back and be like kick-ass older people too. And exactly. you go over this in your book, right? You actually give people things that, that you give us, things that we can do so that we can rebuild our mitochondria. Most definitely. Yeah. And my new book, Eat for Energy, is uh, purely nutrition focused. So food and supplements. Okay. Uh, and, and it's basically a distillation of everything I have learned in 25 plus years of studying this, of the, the link between nutrition and energy enhancement. Well, that's perfect because then they can get your energy blueprint and implement you know, circ sleep, circadian rhythm, the hermetic stresses, all that fun stuff that really, I mean, listen, it's a business now. You can buy a tub that you can put ice in and keep it in your garage and pop the top and do an ice bath, you know? Now you can buy red lights, you can buy infrared lights, you can buy all kinds of lights. So we can, and now it's a business, but if you implement some of the tools that you talk about, it really can make a difference. And on my side of things, like yay for the mitochondria and anti-aging, and then, hey, bonus, everything that Ari's talking about also helps you lose weight and feel better and have actual energy to get rid of your fatigue. Yes, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm happy in a way that hormetic stress has sort of gone mainstream. Yeah. A decade ago, I remember talking to like my functional medicine friends and talking about hormesis and getting these funny looks like, what the hell is that? You right. Know? And, and um, I... I have mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, now it's much more widely known on, and that's a good thing. On the other hand, I, you know, I, this was my unique shtick for a long time. and I was like the only one talking about this. Um, I was doing red light therapy and near infrared light therapy where I was sourcing lights from marijuana grow light companies and having them make custom led lights for me because there was no red and near infrared light companies right. so i was i was and you know sort of on the frontier of, of that as well and now that's gone mainstream now i i've written uh, pretty much the book on the subject so anyway yeah i i i, I to be honest i relish the time where i was the only one talking about those things but on the right. other hand, it's a beautiful <laughs> thing that that more people are aware of the, the benefits of these technologies 
But you put it all in one place for us. So, you know, you can do the internet search of, oh, do this and do this and create a stressor this way. But you kind of tied it up in a bow for people. So that still makes you the guru on it. It still does. You still <laughs> got you. it. <laughs> Thank you my horn a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So Ari, if people want to get the book, if they want to find you, if they want to get both of your books, mm-hmm. where can they find you? Yeah, Amazon.com is is the place to get the books. Um, my new book just came out in May about a month ago. Uh, it's called Eat for Energy. And uh, yeah, I would highly recommend getting that. It's, it's uh, 350 pages or something packed with no fluff, just all power packed info. It's got over a thousand references. I mean, I, I like this much of the book is references. Yeah. Um, I, I, I got a comment from a nurse who said, you know, she, she wrote a review on Amazon, said something like, you know, I came into this book skeptical, thinking it was just going to be another diet book with a bunch of fluff. And I have to say, I'm blown away by how much science is packed in here. I don't have any other book that I've ever read on health other than textbook, like medical textbooks that have this many references in them. So um, that gives you a sense of how much science is in there. It's well worth it. And uh, and then if you want to follow my work more broadly, theenergyblueprint.com. Absolutely. And we're all about no fluff here. I, I'm, I'm very blunt, right to the point. Like, let's just tell it like it is. And I love it being backed by research. So if I, and I rarely recommend a nutrition book. I recommend this book. I really, really do. Because it, it's no bullshit, no fluff. It's, it's just stuff you need to know. And it's backed mm-hmm. by research. So I'm telling all of y'all to get it. And we will put this in. We'll put all of your information. We'll put the links in the show notes as well. So everybody can just scroll down and click and go right to it. But Ari, thank you so much for jumping on here. I know I put you, I put you on, on, in the fire in the very beginning about Andrew. But I wanted to talk about this because too many people rely on that as, like I said earlier, as a crutch. So we started off with adrenals, but we broke it down, connecting mitochondria. Mitochondria is tied to thyroid function, hormone function. It's tied to every aspect of your body, every cellular metabolism aspect. So I, I really wanted to get you on here and talk about all kinds of different stuff. So thank yeah, you so a, much for your time. It, it was a pleasure, and uh, I really enjoy interviews like this with people who are at such a high level like yourself because you ask great questions. And- It makes for really beautiful exchanges, and and I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely, Ari. Thank you, too. And I will send you all of the information tomorrow whenever this is released so you'll get all of the, the fun podcast stuff. Awesome. All right. Take care. Take care, everyone.